King Nine calling Firefly. Mayday, Mayday. King Nine calling Firefly. Mayday, Mayday. King Nine calling Firefly. Come in, please. King Nine calling Firefly. Mayday, Mayday. Come in, please. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And And, uh, unlike the King Nine, we have returned. Yeah, season two. I hope you guys enjoyed our brief little asides of our wrap-up of season one. And then our really, I had a lot of fun talking about some Black Mirror. And uh, Yeah, that was was a great time. Yeah, but now we're back. We're back back into watching stuff that doesn't have color. Um, And we're going to, I'm excited. I've been missing the Twilight Zone. Yeah, I, it felt good going on to Netflix and pressing that play button. Continue. Yeah. Continue watching. So uh, before we get into uh, the episode proper, we did want to mention uh, there is actual news with not something we normally do here on the show. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we uh, last week we saw the passing of Martin Landau, who was on uh, Mr. Denton on Doomsday. And I know that wasn't one of our favorite episodes, but uh, he was one of the bigger actors we ran into in season one. And uh, I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention the passing of. So rest in peace, Martin Lando. Yeah. And I have to go back and I got to watch Rounders at some point because that's like one of my favorite movies. And he has a really good part in it. Yeah, he's he's been in so much stuff. You know, I was flipping through his uh, filmography after I saw they passed away. I was like, my God, I forgot just how much he was in. Yeah, it's insane. Like, I, I'll always be a fan of uh, um, him and Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Oh, yeah. So good. Yeah, really good. So if you guys have not seen Ed Wood, you need to check it out. His, his Bella Lugosi is awesome. So, yeah, uh, I feel like that's a movie that kind of fits in with this show. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it would ex- it existed at the same time as the show was being. Pre- no, it, no, Plan Nine came out first. Yeah, anyway. yeah, that was before. Yeah, see, here we go. Season two, not getting facts right again. Keeping uh, it consistent. Martin Lando is also in Star Wars. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, Henry Mancini did the music for that. I think. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Look, I'm gonna say dumb things like that, and then later on, I think I'm really gonna believe it, and that's not good. So anyway, enough about that. Uh, season two, episode one, King Nine will not return. Um, before we get any further, that's still one of the coolest titles for an episode ever, regardless of how I feel about this episode. Spoilers. Yeah. Um, air date, September 30th, 1960. So we cruise right past the summer and missed Psycho being in the theater, but I just wanted to mention that. Uh, number one song, My Heart Has a Mind of Its Own by Connie Francis. Uh, okay. Number one film, uh, it's called The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. Not a horror film. It's based upon some play. Never, it just didn't really care. Read about it, seemed really boring. Uh, it's a bummer because the week before, the number one film was Little Shop of Horrors. Ah, oh, 
Man, we missed all the fun stuff. <laughs> right? Um, fun fact about this air date, uh, September 30th, 8.30 p.m. on ABC. Uh, it was the premiere of the Flintstones. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So that, that's something else that's, you know, has... I, not that the Flintstones shaped my life, but like they're around everywhere. I mean, well, I mean, if it wasn't for their vitamins, I don't know if I'd be here. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us would be here. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up watching Flintstones. I, yeah. I used to watch it Saturday mornings. So but, I think it's a big part of everyone's life. Right. So, um, yeah, that's it. That's, all right. that's all I got. Yeah, yeah, I, I got nothing. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll get into this episode. <laughs> All right. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, man. We were off our game here. So yeah, we'll jump into cast and crew here. Sorry, I was waiting for Serling come in. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, okay, no, yeah. we haven't done cast or crew. Yeah. All right. So King Nine will not return. Directed by Buzz Kulik, who uh, he he went on to do quite a bit of uh, Twilight Zone work. He did eight other episodes. Uh, it seems like he probably met Serling. He did some work for Playhouse ninety. Yeah. So I'm gonna assume they met on the set there. Um, and then the only two other things I was really familiar with other than a ton of TV movies, he did Brian's song with James Conn and, uh, Billy D Williams, which is a pretty famous film. We used to sell a ton of it when I used to work at FYE. Yeah. It's the true story of, uh, was it Gail Sayers? And like, I think it's yeah, Gail Sayers. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you know, I think so. yeah, it, it's one of those ones that like, you know, it's like one of the few movies that like men can be like, it's okay to cry watching Brian's song. Yeah, and then uh, he also did The Hunter with Steve McQueen. Figured that was worth bringing up. And I saw that he uh, did uncredited work on the 1972 TV film Crawl Space. And I know that's kind of one of those ones that is talked about in passing as being an influential like TV horror movie. That's um, about like a family moving in and finding a kid already living living in this house. And it's kind of it's it's awkward. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Um, I, you know, I saw the title and I got excited because I thought it was the Klaus Kinski movie from, uh, was it 1986 or so? Okay. It's the puppet master director. That did yeah, it. yeah. I know. It's like I, a, yeah. a Nazi living in the attic of an apartment building. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a very different film. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I also want to point out here that the score to this episode, which is actually the music's really, really good in this episode. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's done by uh, Fred Steiner, um, and he he's best known for Park Avenue Beat, which is the Perry Mason theme. Oh, nice. Yeah, and we should bring up as far as music. This episode was the first to use that Marius Constant theme that we hear. Uh, that the the theme of what we know to be Twilight Zone, the thing. Yeah. I don't that, know if you noticed that. It was weird because it's like that's something that, you know, I've it's been ingrained in my head. But after watching a whole season with the the other intro, it was it wasn't off putting, but it was like because we still don't actually have the full official Twilight Zone intro where you have the opening of the door and the eyeball and the, the swirl like that's yet yeah. to come. But the music yeah, still using the video from uh, season one. The, that they started using halfway through that one. Yeah. So it, yeah, you're right. It didn't actually feel like what we know the Twilight Zone to be yet. But it felt good to hear the sound. I had to go back. I'm like, have we heard this before yet? Because <laughs> it just it feels so natural to hear it. And uh, yeah, this is the first one. And this is also the first one to uh, have uh, Rod Serling in person giving the intro narration. Yeah, I'm glad that he came back after uh, his uh, sudden and abrupt disappearance. At the end of season one, 
Uh, so I'm glad that he was able to, to be realized back into reality and can do the intros for the shows. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, great stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll continue into crew. Episode was written by Rod Serling uh, yet again. And then cast, we have Robert Cummings. And that's basically it. He plays <laughs> Captain James Embry. And uh, it, he's a fairly big actor. He was most well known for it. He did uh, the Bob Cummings show, also known as Love That Bob. That was on NBC. It's on for four years from uh, 1955 to 1959. So this had just ended by the time he did this role in 1960. So it must have been weird for people to see him outside of that uh, the comedic role that people are used to seeing him because it looks like after that he went on to do he did uh dial in for murder and a few other thrillers so this really opened doors for him to get out of his uh comedic roles yeah and i was reading about a little bit of behind the scenes for season two uh they there's there's a number we'll get to it probably later about how much the budget was slashed part of that is because there's there's less episodes this season than there were the first season but also they were trying to just cbs started watching their budgets and they were worried that they wouldn't attract the same amount of talent to the show. Uh, but Buck Houghton was like, no, people are approaching us saying, you know, I, I want to be on the show because of the prestige of having this like, you know, singular story to shine. And it was almost like people were like, y'all work cheap. Just get me on the Twilight Zone. So it turned out that wasn't really a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, Robert Cummings started working in the early 30s in comedy. So probably doing the Twilight Zone gave second life to his career. I, I can only imagine being able to show off the acting chops because he he does a pretty decent uh, performance in this episode. Yeah, for what he's given, I think he's fine. And then the second time I watched it, it, it grew on me a little bit more. Um, fun fact about him. So I just want to mention here. Uh, he was taught to fly uh, while he was in high school by his godfather, Orville Wright. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he uh, was during high school. He would actually give residents a ride in his aircraft for $5 per person, which that's a lot of money back then. But when the government began licensing flight instructors, he was issued flight instructor certificate number one, making him the first official flight instructor in the United States. Oh, man. That is uh, strangely appropriate. <laughs> appropriate for this episode. Yeah, but your godfather was all right. You know, like that's and we're watching an episode that's in 1960, which I mean, I, I understand that, you know, time moves fast and, you know, and it's hard for us to understand. But it's like his godfather helped document, like, you know, create flight. And then it's like, here we are years later with the magic of television and film. And he's in front of this like B-52 bomber type plane that even then was like 20 years old, not 20 years old, like maybe 15 years old. You know, it's like, it's just, yeah, with jets flying over him. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. But it's <sighs> like, that's, it, it's just, it, it, it blows my mind at how fast everything developed, you know? Like, yeah. And, so I thought that, that was interesting, like tie into the actual episode. Definitely. And, uh, we'll talk about that budget slashing. Cause I, I feel like this episode, it didn't show too much. Oh no. I, no. I, I think they did a fantastic job with the set dressing and everything. Oh, um, and, and also, sorry. <laughs> Remember, uh, there was an episode we did uh, in the first season with um, all the, was it the After Hours where the, the lead lady, she went on to become Honey West, the detective. Um, I think we talked about her. She was also on that, that show called My Living Doll where she was a robot and she was learning to become a human. And I mentioned how that only lasted like a season and the main actor walked away like two thirds of the way through. That was Bob Cummings. Oh, wow. So he was yeah, like, this yeah, is a shit show. Hours. I got to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah, it was Anne Francis and After Hours. So there you go. That's my, there, There's your My Living Doll connection for the week. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, I'll name off since there's only a few other people in the episode. I might as well give them credit. I didn't really take any <laughs> notes for anyone else. Uh, we have Gene Lyons as psychiatrist. Paul Lambert as doctor. Jenna McMahon as nurse. And uh, Richard Lupino as Blake. So I did a little bit of research. I'll just mention this stuff real, real quick in passing. Paul Lambert as the doctor. He was a one-episode of Doogie Hauser, so I thought it's appropriate because he's playing a doctor. Uh, <laughs> did Star Trek Next Generation. There's a future Star Trek connection. Uh, and like he did all sorts of TV, like Night Court, Airwolf, Riptide, The Fall Guy, Auto Man, Blue Thunder. He was in Death oh, Wish 2. I, lo- I love Blue Thunder. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the psychiatrist was also an episode of Star Trek because I got to mention that every time that happens. But Jenna McMahon, the nurse who only had like one line, she's actually the most interesting person aside from Bob Cummings in this episode. She was yeah, part- she was a writer of yeah. some sort, right? Yeah, yeah. And she uh, um, she wrote a lot on the Bob Newhart show, on the Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show, Soap, and she actually co-created the Facts of Life and Mama's huh. Family. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah I saw she had a lot of writing credits when I was flipping through. I saw the, uh, the Carol Burnett show as well. She was one of the head writers on. Yeah, who would have thought we'd ever bring a mama's family talking about the Twilight Zone? So, But there you <laughs> go. So, yeah, that's it. You're right. There's not, not many people here. Yeah, I mean, basically, we have Robert Cummings the entire episode until the last maybe five minutes. Yeah, maybe. Not. Yeah. So, all right, that's it. That's your cast and crew. Let's just let, let Serling take it away. This is Africa, 1943. War spits out its violence overhead, and the sandy graveyard swallows it up. Her name is King Nine, B-25 medium bomber, 12th Air Force. On a hot, still morning, she took off from Tunisia to bomb the southern tip of Italy. An errant piece of flak tore a hole in a wing tank, and like a wounded bird, this is where she landed. Not to return on this day, or any other day. Interesting intro, because it's the first time you saw him on camera introducing the episode. So and, serious. Yeah, very serious. But it was like, did you notice how like the, like the whip pan from like the plane to him, like real quick, it was very jarring when it's like, oh, he's here in the desert with us. <laughs> I like it. I I love seeing Sterling in the actual episode. Yeah. And, and, and to find out that like, he really hated being on camera. So whenever they would shoot these little intros, uh, the director would purposely try to, to, to get him to like act goofy just to kind of catch him off guard. So when they'd actually get more like a natural reaction on camera. So they had to do a lot of kind of work to get him to like, you know, loosen up. Yeah. He seemed, he seemed really loose in this intro. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, so the intro, you see the plane, you see the King nine and it's like, you see, um, it's strewn across like, you know, the desert with it's like, it's parts like in a a trail. Right. And then, then, um, and then it leads to our main character, uh, which I forgot his, his name in the show, uh, captain James Embry. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, why don't you take it away on this complicated plot here? Sorry. (laughs) No, Uh, it's, it's. It's all good. Yeah, so he wakes up and he sees that it looks like he survived this plane crash where this this plane just went belly belly first into the desert. And as he's waking up, he's like trying to figure out like what's going on and to see where his crew is. And he has this moment of just like exploring through the plane, which uh, again, I know we're probably get to our feelings about the episode. Um, That's an actual plane that they brought in. 
Um, and I got a trivia about that here a little bit later. And just some of the shots of him working way th- his way through the plane, trying to figure out where the crew went. Those are some interesting shots. And it's very, very uncomfortable realizing how small an interior of a bomber is when he's yelling out like nine different names. Yeah. Well, it, there, there's the moment where he's like sliding backwards into the, I, I don't know what you call it. My, <laughs> my, uh, plane knowledge is not that, uh, great, but when he's sliding into the back of the ship and it, it's really disorienting cause yeah. I was trying to figure out where he was coming from is it almost looked like he was climbing up and then he spun around and dropped down it was it was interesting, but yeah, you're right. I can't imagine fitting nine people into that small space. Yeah, and, it, and, and uh, communicate and and fight and survive. You know, uh, like it's imagine just, how loud it would be too. Yeah, like I just I mean we can't like that's something that like you know I um like the the, the film Dunkirk's opening this weekend, uh, and I know Nolan. Is going to show like war and it's all its loudness, right? Even then, I'd still imagine that we can't con- comprehend how loud it would be being stuck in one of those planes with active fire going on. Oh yeah, but yeah, that's not that's not this episode. So yeah, it's a very quiet. episode. It's a very quiet episode, <laughs> and, and so mainly, it's just uh, the the bulk of it is just Embry trying to figure out what happened to his crew. And there's some clues here and there that things aren't quite right. And, but a lot of it's just him. Like, and, and, and I was going to ask you this uh, when we got into the episode proper, but it's kind of, I guess it's the best question to ask right now. This is like the third episode we've seen so far where there's a lot of internal thought process. And the first one you saw was where is everybody where there was no internal thought process. It was just the main actor saying everything that occurred to him. And then you get to like the hitchhiker which, I mean, we know is a radio play, so there was a lot of like internal dialogue, but a lot of it was just in Nan's head as she's yeah. like thinking about things. And this tried to like strike a balance between the two. Like, How did you feel about that? Um, it came off kind of awkward, to be honest. Like, there were moments I didn't realize as soon as his voiceover started, I didn't realize he wasn't speaking. I thought my audio was unsynced on my Netflix, to be <laughs> honest. Like, it... it it caught me off guard a little bit. Um, I think it works once you get used to it, but yeah, I, I don't think it was the most effective, but I don't know how else you would do this without narration. Well, because, I mean, yeah, that's true. But I mean, do you, you like, know, do you think if like he a, was just speaking out loud, I think it would be really awkward. Yeah, I got That's true. I, uh, and, and again, I know we've talked about this in times past with such a short running time you can't have a whole lot of, of scenes just to let something breathe, you know, like, cause you got to get to the story, which like there is a lot of story here, but it shows up at the very end. And, yeah. it, and it's like, and so, I mean, I don't know how else to get to it, but as he's like walking around the plane and I want to point out that the, the paint job of the, of the King nine logo uh, is a suicide King. Just, I wanted to point that out. I don't know if that was done on purpose or not. Um, hmm. I, th- I thought that was kind of a nice touch, uh, yeah. but like, and I'll give the director credit. Like, I, I don't feel like this was the best directed episode we've seen, but when you're given just a desert and a plane for the most part, there's some dynamic shots going on and there's, there's interesting ways of just kind of letting, letting that Hulk of a machine, you know, be its own character. And I, and I yeah. like that too. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to get a bad shot. That's such a beautiful looking plane. 
Um, I was I was really infatuated with it the entire time it was on screen. It was a really cool plane. Um, yeah, it, it, there were some it, there were some decent shots too. I I think I agree that there was just a lot of nothing going on. But when he did give you little hints, like there was one shot that really stuck out to me uh, when he was sitting in the cockpit of the plane and he was kind of just yelling out names. And I think he tried the radio for the first time while he's sitting there. The shot was through the windshield and you could see the bullet holes right at like head level for him and the passenger seat in the cockpit. So like you can tell that who was ever sitting in those seats were dead. Like there is no way, you know. And they were kind of giving you a clue for later on the episode. Yeah, and, then, and it, yeah. So I mean those little hints like that and uh you know when he did actually see at the at the mirages as what he thinks they are when he sees them. When he starts seeing those mirages, that was interesting. Um but I just yeah, I think there was just a little too much nothing going on for the first 20 minutes of this episode. Which is a shame because like the it's when when you get to the hook of what's going on, which we'll, we'll get there probably sooner than later. Um yeah. it's it's not a bad hook. Uh it, it, it's one that we've kind of seen before like a little differently and I'll, I'll talk about that more later. Um but watching it the second time there, there's bits of dialogue he says that rise up to the top that don't really fit with everything else. And there's times where he says things that, that speak directly about what's going on. So I guess credit to Serling that he's able to mask some of the, like the, the what's actually happening to him and some of this dialogue. Cause there's a point where he is kind of like at odds because he, he varies from like trying to figure out what's going on to like freaking out to having a weird laugh. Like it's the whole gambit. There's a bit where he says, don't you guys understand? I'm responsible. I'm responsible. And he just says it like, like I'm responsible because I'm the captain of your crew and I'm supposed to keep care of, you know, take care of you guys. But when you realize what's going on, it's like, he's confessing everything. Yeah. Yeah. That, it, it's not something you would get on the first viewing. And it might be something that, you wouldn't even remember by the time you got through on the first time viewing. Yeah. It's uh, you have to know the punchline to even catch those little things. Yeah. So uh, again, Sir Link's a great writer. <laughs> yeah. I, it just, the, it, it, this is one of those cases where <laughs> it's like he, and we're going to get to the very, very end. It's like he, he just has this whole pocket full of story ideas that he's like, you know what? I couldn't do it in this one, but I'm going to do it in this one, you know? And like, so, um, so yeah, he the so the 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 main character. When I keep saying that, I mean the only character. He's wandering around trying to figure out what happens to the crew. You said that he sees phantoms sometimes. There's bits where he finally finds like a grave of one of his lost of one of the, you know the people his crew. And as he sees it, I think that's when he hears the jets overhead. And like that's a it's an interesting moment just because like that like either he shouldn't be there or they shouldn't be there, you know. Yeah. And that I thought well, that was you know hinting towards something bigger. And I love the fact that uh, to point out something great in this, uh, I love the fact that he's coming to conclusions. He's kind of trying to guess the twist with you. Yes. The entire episode where he's like, maybe I'm dead, you know, or maybe I'm at a bar and I'm passed out on a bar stool and this is all just a dream I'm having. Maybe I'm crashed in the desert and I'm just, you know, I'm dying out in the desert and this is all just a mirage, you know, again. And, and, you know, he's kind of guessing the twist with you. And I I really enjoyed that for uh, those parts of his character. Because it was it was something that I think we'd all do if we were stuck in a uh, 
some situation that was this extreme. Like you're going to have to at one point, you know, like uh, like I got to pinch myself in my dreaming moment. Well, and it's, it's kind of a bold way to open season two, right? To be like, oh, you guys think you know what's happening. Play along with it, you know, with the main character type of thing, right? And I'm sure that wasn't the intent, but it's still kind of the same thing where it's like, you guys think you know the Twilight Zone? You don't know what's happening. The main character's giving you all these, like, things that happened pretty much in the episodes we've seen previously. Like, one of his lines was, maybe I'm cracked up on some army base. You know, and that's yeah, like that, which it, is uh, the first episode in the first season. Yeah, right? there's a lot of some similarities to that. So it's kind of cool that the first episode in both these seasons have some uh, some similarities like that. Yeah, to a, to a point. That's going to be my problem with this episode when we get there. But <laughs> it's, so, like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much more we can go with this other than he thinks he sees his crew. They're not there. He thinks either you know he he knows something's not right because he's there. And he asks all these valid questions that that are never going to get answered. Like, well, if I'm here and and I don't see any bodies here, then they must have walked away. But why didn't they come get me? Like, he's asking all the right questions that you would ask in a situation like this. But then when the jets show mm-hmm. up, he first says, "Well, what are those?" And then he starts remembering what they are. And he's like, "Wait, this is 1945. Jets aren't around yet." You know. So I thought that was interesting that he's acknowledging like, well, I know that technology. Why wouldn't I know that technology? And then it doesn't occur to him like then like why does he know about that? Well, I think he does say that. I think he's like, how would I know about that? Yeah, I think he asked yeah, that to himself. Probably. He said a lot of things. And uh Yeah. <laughs> which I mean again He was the only one saying a lot of things. And and like I'm not saying he did a bad job. I I, I think that he there's there's some some lean parts to this this uh the script that you had to I, I just i guess the reason why sterling liked this director so much uh the uh, buzz kulik is because i guess buzz was like an actor's director like he really could work with the people and get like good performances and i'm not saying that uh, bob cummings didn't do a good performance i think he did fine i just think that he was given and just an odd an odd situation to play and he had to he had to go through a lot of emotions in a hurry you know, so it's it's a tough draw. Yeah, that was one of my notes as well, is that uh, he loses his mind pretty quick at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess we can just get to it. I mean, I, enough uh, dancing around it. Like after, you yeah. know, all of this, he finally like freaks out, ends up like lying on the sand. And because uh, he ends up seeing his crew, he's like, why don't you guys just show up? Why don't you just come and yell at me? And he sees them all laughing at him for a second. And he ends up like on the ground gripping at the sand and there's a decent transition of him gripping at the sand and it's, and it's him gripping at the bed sheets in his hospital bed. And you find mm-hmm. out that he's been in a hospital this entire time or has he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, what happened was he was walking by a newspaper stand and he saw that there was the discovery of the King nine that, uh, they found the the plane in uh, just south of in uh, or where was it the desert like North African desert yeah. or something, and um, so they found his old ship that he used to be the captain of, and he didn't go with his crew on the last mission, so they ended up crashing, uh, more than likely all dying on that. And he's been living with the guilt of not being there for his his uh, crew. So he's he's had this guilt that he's been carrying around the whole time. So when he saw that, he basically put himself into a uh, into like a dream state 
uh, imagining himself at the crash site with his uh, with his crew. So my question is the the story of them finding the King Nine. It's significant, right? But is it significant enough to make a headline that large on a newspaper? That like of all things going on in the world, it's like, hey guys, we found this plane that's like 15 years ago that was in World War Two, <laughs> and it had this font like yeah, this font size was like three stuff. It was like uh, yeah, I mean, because you still got to figure out what happened to those three astronauts that went up in space. You know, like uh, back when the sky was open, uh, you got to figure out what happened to them. You know what yeah. what happened? Um, it, it's it caught me off guard because like it was like a two hundred point font on the front of this page. You know, but I I don't I see the part of this I actually am okay with it being like his guilt just building up like he should have been there. He felt guilty that he wasn't on that last mission, and he feels like maybe if he would have been there, he could have brought them back. I think that works, and and I almost kind of I kind of wish it would have stopped there. You know, but that's maybe that's my more modern sensibility, but it doesn't stop there. And you find out that uh, like um, the nurse, like there, there's a whole thing. No, no, actually, he says I he's like for a second there. I thought I was there. I saw jets. It was the weirdest thing. And he's like, did I go there? And then like the doctor, the psychiatrist are like, you're nuts. I don't know, but you're fine now. Let's just, just rest, you know. And so then yeah. the nurse shows up with his clothing and as she goes sit it on the table, like the little, little, little whatever it is, countertop, the shoe tips over and there's a bunch of sand that comes out of it. And they all look at it like, where'd this come from? And they're all like just mystified by all the sand of this guy's shoes. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah, like did he was he really there yep. today? That's the twist. Yeah, like was he there? Like like was he did he astrally project from the bed? to the King nine and walked around for a while. Like we, we, and then somehow actually projected and brought back sand. I don't know. Like yeah, it, I was just about to ask, can you bring physical objects back from astral projecting? <laughs> who knows? I right. We're going to have to get an expert on next week. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it just, so we, we know that from reading about where is everybody that in the novelization of the story or like when you put it in writing form, Serling, said that he wanted to have the main character of that actually pull half a ticket stub out of his pocket after, you know, getting out of the little, um, like, um, pod that was like the testing facility. And so he, but they didn't let it, they didn't use that ending in the, in the episode, which to its credit, it's a stronger episode, but he was like, wait, this is my chance. I could bring it back now. And I just, it, you could tell someone's in love with something so much that they don't care if it, if it, kind of steps on the ending that you already have yeah you know i I didn't mind the supernatural ending here because we haven't gotten way too many episodes that end on that questionable uh you know unknown ending and i i kind of i kind of enjoyed it be honest i well i mean i guess it was packaged somewhat like differently maybe i don't know but it just it just felt like it was such there's so much plot in like the last two minutes of the episode that the first like 23 didn't have that it's like, you almost have to be like, wait, 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 what happened? And, and not in a good way. Like you have to really think about it for a second, which, you know, if I'm watching this on broadcast, I'd have been like, what did I just watch? You know, like I would have been, I don't know if I would have been super happy about that. And, and watching it the second time, which I was kind of dreading just because I felt like the first half of it was slow, which for a 20 minute like show, that's not good. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just—it's it, not—it's not a bad episode. It's just, I guess, maybe maybe it's my own fault because episode one ended on a high note, and we know there's a lot of good stuff coming, 
and I was super excited to get back into watching the Twilight Zone, and this is the one that we got, you know. So maybe it's on me for wanting wanting a lot more than what we ended up with. I thought it was fine. I honestly, I I didn't hate the episode or anything. No. I didn't think it was the worst we've seen. I I think it's it's mid range, uh, Twilight Zone. It, it does enough things that I enjoy, and I love when Serling touches on the military aspects of storytelling because it's it's something that is near and dear to him. It's something that I think he writes well for because it's something that's personal for him. Um, but yeah, there are definitely some weak moments and you know, we talked about a few episodes last season that maybe somebody could have pulled him aside and been like, Hey, why don't you cool down with this plot a little bit? Like, (laughs) you know, like, and I, I don't think enough people are doing this. I think at this point, not as many people were stepping in, to tell him what he could or couldn't do. I, I don't know if I'm wrong in that assumption. I, I think you're right. But I, I think feel that, like he's yeah. got a little bit more free reign just because the show has become such a success by this time. Yeah, the only thing that they're going to be watching is the money. And this one even went over budget, too, which was uh, like you think, like, okay, guys, we got it, we got it. And then it went it's over kind budget. Of surprising. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of surprising because, I mean, I, I guess renting the bomber that they use. And, and getting Robert Cummings in the episode, like, I can't imagine anything else costing that much money in this. Well, actually, I think the plane costs less than Robert Cummings. So I have the note here uh, where to go. Um, shoot. I, it, there was a cost for the plane, and I, it was something really cheap. Let me find it. Because, <laughs> like, normally, like, um, they bought it from Air Force, uh, like, like, um, like, surplus. And there, where was the price? I want to say it was like twenty five hundred bucks or something. Yeah, it was the B fifty two bought from the Air Force was uh, twenty five hundred dollars. Original asking price was three hundred forty five thousand dollars. So yeah, <laughs> kind of significant. I I would definitely buy that and put it in my backyard. Yeah, <laughs> just saying. Well, and considering that twenty five hundred <laughs> is about half of what the main list cast would get. Um, as if like as their payment, like they were the most people were paid in the season one was like five thousand. So they they and, and and knowing that this plane was, um, you know, pretty much its own character, and the Air Force is like, yeah, you can take it for twenty five hundred, but you got to get it out of here. Like, why wouldn't you say yes to that? Yeah. Um, do you know? Did this plane come back in any other episodes? Um, did it say no? You you think though for using this? I've been like, all right, guys, we have three more plane crash episodes coming up this season now. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I'm like, look, looking forward to seeing this plane in five other episodes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> like, like they saved it for terror. Was it uh, ten thousand feet with Shatner? That's that's the plane. You just don't yeah. know. You just see that plane uh, flying by outside of the window. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened to the King Nine. The Gremlin got it. That's what happened. Now we know. There we go. Um, that's funny. Yeah, you're, I'm surprised they didn't use it for everything. It's like, all right, this is a guy's house now. We're gonna put a roof on it. It's a house. We're gonna use it for the set. It'll, it'll be like the mansion in uh, season one. Yeah, <laughs> they're gonna put an antenna on it and call it a UFO. Be like, it's a spaceship. Just deal with it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, not to my knowledge, I don't know if they reused it, but yeah, I thought that was, uh, thought that was interesting, just because of like the cost that you would think for that plane. And twenty five hundred dollars back then wasn't like. That's that was still. I mean, that was you know, it was more than it is now, but you know. Well, I it, guess my other question: Does it still fly when no. they bought it? No. Okay. They, they, right. they had to take yeah, it in parts and move bad. it up there. Um, so yeah. yeah, it didn't fly. 
Uh, but yeah, so just Robert Cummings could have taken it <laughs> off set and <laughs> flown the, away. The ghost of Orville Wright flew that plane up to the location in California. That's what happened. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an okay story. I think the idea of survivor's guilt is way stronger than the episode itself. And yeah, and it, it, it's probably something that, uh, that Serling had dealt with, you know, cause, uh, he saw a lot of uh, crazy stuff when he was in the military. You know, we've talked about his purple heart and him saving people. So, like, I'm sure he at some point had some sort of survivor's guilt. Yeah. So, it, again, I, I love when Serling kind of mixes in stuff that, at least when I watch it, I take as it being uh, autobiographical. No, I think that's fair. And I think it's a brave statement to make recognizing um, like survivor's guilt and maybe even some PTSD before you even gave it a name, like in an episode like yeah. this, right? Like, cause we even saw even like judgment night, uh, even though it was like a German, you know, being punished, there was some really brave statements made there about like the cost of war and the guilt of war, you know? And so like, so I think that's big here. I just don't think it's given the proper um, the for for an episode that just did a lot of nothing. It the the biggest thing wasn't given space to breathe. I feel like you could have yeah. leaned heavier on that, and you could have had like a tour de force episode of him just being torn apart by that guilt, as opposed to him walking around and finding a canteen. And uh, you know, it's I don't know. Like it was just it was okay. It it could have been better, and that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, I I can definitely agree with that. Um, some good ideas, uh, probably just could have been tightened up a little bit. Um, you mentioned the score by, uh, who was it? Fred Steiner. I think that was another thing that really saved this episode for me. Cause yeah. the, the musical uh, aspect of this, it's, it's got a very mysterious vibe to it and it kind of, that and, uh, Robert Cummings performance really kind of kept me guessing what was going on. And it really kept me in engaged with the episode because other than that, I, I, there's not too much to grasp onto in this. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and maybe it was a little sour for me just knowing that, that it, not that I'm not that I shouldn't judge a creator for music and ending that he couldn't use previously. Cause I mean, everyone, you know, if someone has a good idea, it's going to show up somewhere. It just felt like he was real eager to be like, oh, this is also a person that served in the military in some fashion that's in a place he doesn't really know, and he has to question everything that's going on, and there's no one around. Well, maybe we're going to give him sand in his pocket and also a movie, a movie ticket that you can't see. That's just what it felt yeah. like, you know, and and maybe that's why. Well, this was, episode, yeah. the, uh, the episode also does kind of feel like time element as well, just a with the... The person out of time with the military aspects to it. It, it just felt like where is everybody 2.0 to me in a lot of spots, you know, and and I, not, yeah. it, not that it's a bad thing, but I feel like that first one did a really good job. So I, I don't know. Maybe he was a little too close to this script when he wrote it and didn't realize that, like, it was not too many shades apart from that. Or maybe the survivor's guilt thing was enough for him to say that, you know what, this is its own story. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I I would definitely take where is everybody over this one. Yeah, and so when Variety reviewed this episode when it first aired, I feel like this sums up kind of how I feel about this. It's a little a little harsh. Uh, it says the quick wind up after the moody suspenseful beginning was a letdown. It gave the impression that Serling had suddenly run out of ideas. That's not true. It's just that he had ideas from previous. 
But yeah. even then, people were like, I don't know. This was, wasn't the best. So, and you know, it, not all of them are going to be winners. And I, and I know when we come back to look at season two, this is probably not going to be in my top or bottom. Um, but it, the imagery is enough that I've watched this a couple of days ago that I keep thinking about it. You know, and so credit to that because the idea of just a plane that has been out there, which I know we're going to mention kind of the inspiration for the episode here in a minute, um, that's very haunting, you know, and it's very like when you see things that are fragments of war that are still there, it's a very it's a very haunting image. Yeah, and I, I love that they have the uh, bushes growing in front and next to it and everything. I couldn't tell if they were growing since the plane had crashed there or if it had just kind of landed on some bushes. But it <laughs> yeah. really made it look like it had been there for a little while. Yeah. And uh, that that plane is really cool. That's a, <laughs> like I said at the beginning of this episode, I just, it, I, I don't know how you can get a bad shot of something like that. That's true. And, and yeah, and it's a lot. Of, it gives a lot of different ideas, like especially the way he walked around the plane. It's like you you got the idea that you didn't question that he didn't know how to get in and out of that thing and how to operate around it. Like, you know, like because the, the very, very tight fitting, like little areas that he would you know shimmy in and out of. It was like uh, that was also that that creeped me out just because I don't like the idea of that. But I get why. <laughs> like I wrote down in my notes, like it shows you the economy of war. It's like, you know just tighten it all up because you know we need every sp- single space here to contribute towards destroying bad guys you know and yeah it, that that was good but um but the plane itself so there there's a story for this we we probably should have mentioned it earlier um and I know you said you have some of the information up about this uh the actual real life inspiration for this yeah um 2 years before this episode was made there was a discovery of a B24 uh, named the Lady Be Good, who they found the crash, uh, the plane crashed. I think it was uh, in over Italy. I, I'm not sure if where. Oh, it was in the Libyan desert. Um, they found the plane and the crew's remains in 1948, and uh, 1943 was when that plane had disappeared. So in this episode, when it takes place. I think on the grave marker, it says 1943 on it. Um, it was basically, he took that news story and used it for this episode. And the photo of the plane and the newspaper is that the lady be good. Oh, is it? Out. I yeah. didn't see that. Not that it would have mattered, good but call. I, but I found that, that I found that out. So I thought that was interesting that, so I read more about the lady be good. It, it was, um, it was all mm-hmm. new crew that, um, they got separated from the whole squadron that was supposed to be attacking. I forget what, what point, and so they, yeah, and I think yeah. it was a, it was a nine man crew, right? Yeah. And they ended yeah. up flying like two hours South of where they were supposed to be. And they all parachuted out and there's, and they found like a journal of like what happened. And these guys like lived, most of them lived like eight days after the fact. And they thought they were closer to a certain point than they were. And there's a lot of speculation that they thought maybe when they were flying, that they were over the ocean because like, you know, you're looking down at the sand at nighttime, you know, like there was just a lot of like unfortunate situations that led like any one thing could have went right and they would have been fine but all this added up and and none of them made it out Hmm. and then there's one guy in a hospital uh, bed later no i don't know about that but uh, (laughs) but. (laughs) yeah so another uh 
you know, we've talked a lot about Serling taking current events of the time and using them for inspiration in the episode. And this is just another fairly good example of taking an interesting story and twisting it around for uh, uh, for what he thought was a compelling uh, teleplay. <laughs> yeah. And and to tie it to something today, uh, just briefly here, this is from uh, Wednesday, March 8th, uh, 2017. There was a. Uh, a 14-year-old Danish boy doing research for a history class found wreckage of a German World War II plane with the remains of a pilot in the cockpit, and it was like on his grandfather's farm. And so the whole thing is this was in Denmark, and he'd always heard the story from his grandfather that whenever in, during World War II that a plane had crashed there, but they, they kind of felt like it was kind of one of those things that like they believed that it happened. But, you know, why, like, why would there still be like any, any evidence of this? And they found like a lot of remains of this plane. And it's crazy. This only happened a few months ago and people are still finding like significant pieces of the war machine from World War II. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. You know, it it seems far-fetched even in 1960, but just to think in 2017, it's still happening is even more far fetched to me. It's 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 unreal. I mean, it'd be crazy if I found a, if I found a World War II plane in my backyard, that'd be way crazier. So I guess Denmark. Yeah, would that, be would, that would be very <laughs> surprising. There's, in, a, uh, there's, a crashed, yeah, there's a crashed German bomber plane in, in Cleveland. I don't know how I got there. Um, but I would assume that's an air show uh, <laughs> disaster before actual. <laughs> yeah, like the one the one guy that flew away got really off course and ended up in Ohio. Um, but yeah, 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 it's just it's it's interesting that like things are reverberating still that you're finding this stuff, and there's still going to be more stuff found. I mean, look at like they keep finding you know obviously like other parts of history, but World War II is it's still since it's it's so well documented that it's hard to think that it's been however many years. And that there's still like fallout from that, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's kind of a small statement, uh, but it's like if I went out into my backyard and found evidence of World War Two in my backyard, I'd have to stop and think about life for a second. You know, it's just it's just weird. Yeah. But yeah, that's that. So people find planes in backyards still. So or the desert or wherever um, your mileage may vary. So, yeah, let's just uh, do you have anything else uh, from the episode? Uh- the only other thing I saw rumors of uh, Rod's older brother coming in as being a consultant on the aviation stuff in this episode. Did you read anything about that? No. Um, so I guess Rod's older brother, Robert uh, Serling was, it, he was a novelist and uh, he was kind of an expert on aviation and uh, planes and everything. And, uh, I guess he ended up being a consultant in Hollywood for any any time they use like military planes or planes in general in uh, shows. And Serling used them quite a bit later on the Twilight Zone. And people were saying that he was the one they called in to make sure that this plane it, like it, that would basically consult Robert Cummings on how to operate this, what to do, where to go. And the fact that you brought up the fact that uh, um he looks so comfortable walking around. I shouldn't say walking around, sliding around inside the plane. Um, I, w- I was just curious if it was actually true. If Robert Serling actually came in and consulted on this. It's interesting considering that like the, the, the one book I have is like almost like everything that happened with every episode. I did not read any, anything about that. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah. You know. It seems like he would, if, if he called him later on, he had to have called him. 
like how could his older brother not be interested in the fact that uh rod serling for his production was buying a uh b-25 bomber you know like i feel like he would have been there like i gotta see this thing yeah you know? right <laughs> i agree so i've been like oh you you know planes i'm gonna hire you as a consultant that's fine just uh you but know. yeah i thought it was interesting that uh his older brother became fairly well known for his knowledge on aviation um that's the first time i've really ever read anything about his brother yeah, and I, that's that's kind of cool that he he was known independently eventually of his brother. That's kind of that's kind of neat. Um, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah I, I don't have anything else here. Uh, I'm just I'm looking through here. Oh, there's the one bit I just want to mention where he um, tries the radio inside the plane, like in the the one small cabin area. And so then he has like a, a moment where he's trying to he's freaking out. So he opens up like cigarettes and the, and like there's nothing in there. And I thought it was kind of, it's not ironic, but it's like the first time we've seen Twilight Zone where cigarettes have failed somebody. Like every time there's always a cigarette available for someone to smoke. And this is like the one time the guy wanted a cigarette and it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> He's punishing him. Yeah. Serling punishing the character in the, in the script again. Yeah. So I thought, I thought that was funny. That, that was the twist I'm rating, actually. <laughs> that there's no cigarettes. <laughs> the fact that there are no cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Let's. Uh, yeah. I got nothing else. Um, uh, yeah. Let's. Yeah, I'm good. Get to the twist. All right. So I'm going to give it a three for the survivor's guilt angle because I think that's very brave to do at the time. But then I feel like it steps down to a two for the sand. And I know you, you and I have already talked about how we feel about that. Yeah, um, I'm going to give it a three overall just because I, I think it was strong enough. It wasn't one of the best ones we've seen. It's not one of the worst ones. I feel like the whole episode in general is just kind of in between. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I uh, honestly, I didn't see the survivor's guilt thing coming. I expected it to be something a little bit more like, ah, he's dead. Oh, he's 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 just in the hospital bed and that's it. Yeah. And the fact that it went a step further didn't bug me. It didn't take anything away. Um, I, I kind of like when Serling goes into those supernatural elements of the story. So, it, But at the same time, it didn't really give me that powerful impact that some of these twists have. So I'm just going to go in between give it a three. Okay, that, that seems fair. So, All right, so yeah, that's going to do it for King Nine Will Not Return. And we'll put that in the pile of really cool names for episodes that maybe didn't live up to the name. Um, hey, my yeah. my other favorite uh, title is I shot an arrow into the air. Right? So, so <laughs> this this one was at least better than that. That's true. So, um, so yeah, Kevin, how can people get a hold of us? Um, you can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. You can uh, find us on Facebook, Strange Highways. Join the conversation on there. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. And if you could rate and review us on there, greatly appreciate it it would really help us out and uh there's one other thing i was going to mention this week oh yeah um did you want to plug uh your appearance this weekend (laughs) coming up yeah uh so so el goro who was with us um for the time enough at last episode first season uh he has the talk without rhythm podcast which is an amazingly awesome podcast i I just will say many many great things i don't know how that man does it but generally he will talk for an hour and a half by himself and make it compelling make it interesting and make it funny and it's just it's it's a great show and then for some reason he asked me to be on it so i appreciate that 
Um, so we're going to be talking about some sci-fi movies uh, that will be this week coming. We're talking about 1986's The Fly and then 2006's Slither. Nice. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing about, show. about living through it. We'll see how it goes. But uh, <laughs> You'll do great. Yeah, so it'll be a lot of fun. So I look forward to that. Uh, next episode of our show is called The Man in the Bottle. And I'm going to do something a little different this season. We'll see how this goes. And I forgive me because I do not have the same delivery as Rod Serling. But, I, but every time I've been reading about these um, episodes, there's always a little teaser that he would record before the next week, right? So... I, I, I can't find those, but I do have them written out. So I want to read what he says about the man in the bottle coming up next week. So I figured we'd just kind of tease the episodes as we go forward as he wanted to tease them. So Sounds fun. Um, here I go butchering this. <laughs> says, <laughs> the man in the bottle. Inside this curio shop next week from amidst this old school Rococo and some fusty moth eaters antiquary will emerge a bottle, this one. And from it will steep a genie uh, to give Mr. Luther Adler four wishes, but he'll discover, as all will all of you, that there's an econ- um, economics to magic, a high cost of wishing. Next week, a most intriguing tale, The Man in the Bottle. Thank you and good night. I thought you were going to give me music, music at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I just, he has a way with words, and I have a way of not saying them correctly. So. That's it. Um, the man in the bottle. That's going to be a more fantastic episode. I think I've seen this one before. And if it's the one I think it is, one of the wishes gets really dark. So that'll be a lot of fun to talk about. Oh, you know, I'm going to love that then. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so yeah, that's going to do it for us this week. Welcome to season two. I am glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. There's a lot of episodes coming up. I'm super excited for So, um, now that we're past King Nine, <laughs> no, I, 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 I enjoyed it. It will not return, um, but we will. Yes. <laughs> All right. See you guys next week. All right. That would have been a good time, man. But <laughs> see you guys. I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs>